This Choircast podcast is brought to you by the book Too Much and Not Enough, Sacred Thoughts Said Out Loud by Karen Schock. This book is for anyone who has big questions about God and is feeling like a misfit among the people who seem to have it all figured out. Journey with me as we dive into the hard stuff and ask the questions no one else seems to want to ask. We will laugh and cry together. You will shake your head along with me as you read the real stories of anxiety and depression, parenting and marriage, and just plain living this life in the messy middle. I don't have all the answers, but my hope in writing this book is that you, the reader, will feel seen. There is a God who is big enough to handle all of our questions and more loving than we can ever imagine. Let's lean into this life together as we learn how to love and be loved in Too Much and Not Enough, available now on Amazon. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Oh, my goodness. You are not ready. This is going to be so great. We are continuing our series on the censored uh, text, gospels, whatever you want to call them. Um, And we have a great one for you uh, this time, too. Before we jump into that, can't wait. But before we do, we got to quick do some introductions. My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the seven-part Jesus Un series about deconstruction and reconstruction. Oh, my God. Who the hell cares well i do so just in case someone does uh i also the author of the most recently released sola deus what if god is all of us and i am joined by my amazing co-host katie shonda and sometimes matt say hi hey everyone this is katie valentine i'm the founder of the metaphysical christian facebook group and again i just love talking about uh oh i love censoring and so I'm really excited about this series where we're, where we're censoring all the books and telling you what you can't read anymore about the Bible. But Keith, it's so it's so strange that you kicked us off with this series because, you know, we are talking about one of your favorites today. But, well, you'll all see the joke in a minute. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I am Shonda Ja. I am the author of Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. And I am really excited about another uh, book where the version we get in the canonical Gospels doesn't tell very much of a story, and we get a very different one here. And I am Matthew J. DiStefano. Katie, you keep talking about censoring books. We're going to have to call you Katie DeSantis or Katie (laughs) Katie DeSanctimonious. DeSanctimonious. Um, (laughs) We all all are joking. Katie is not about that censorship, which is why we are carrying on with this lovely series that I'm sure would ruffle someone's feathers out there, but not our lovely listeners, because we all know that y'all are about it. Y'all are about it, about it. And I've I've said it before. I'm like the opposite. Someone's. I got, have you ever been accused of a Marcionite uh, or Marcionism? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, he's the, all he's, the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had what like ten books. I'm, I'm all about opening the canon up. I want all the books. So yes, that's expand. what we're doing here. That's Let's right. expand. Like, I, wait. 
people know Marcion well enough to accuse I know. you. No, that's what I was laughing. They, they, they don't they do it. They don't, right which is why they do oh. it. That's right. Oh, that's God. why they do it. Yeah. yeah. The minute you talk about nonviolence, that's they yeah. they go right to Marcionism and then don't. You sound like a Martian. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what Martian? Yeah. No, they don't. Um, I find Gnosticism gets thrown that around that way too, and like that. Yeah, right. We're going to talk about today. It's kind of a debate: yeah. is it Gnostic? Is it not? Etc. But people like, if I say something they don't like, they're like, "Oh, that's Gnosticism." <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think Gnosticism is. It's just it's like become the Karen of all things early it, Christian. Yeah, right, right. Which anyone who has a problem is now a Karen. Or woke. Which is just, it's woke. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's woke. I can't define it, but it's just whatever I I don't agree with. Yeah, right. you sound empathetic, so you're just woke. Yeah, they, you, know, you right. care about yeah. people and their feelings, human beings. Yeah, you're woke. <laughs> Jesus was so, yeah, not we, like that. I mean, we do we do have a lovely episode uh, today for y'all, and we will let them introduce themselves. And there is a bit of irony to this entire episode, which you'll have to wait until the outro, until after we have our conversation. Then we'll get to the ironic part of this whole thing. But before we do that, we have a lovely conversation with a fellow co-host today it's the heretic of the week hello my name is melissa harl salu and i am a heretic please call me melissa hi, hi melissa. melissa hi everybody <laughs> melissa tell us just in a few words why might someone call you a heretic <laughs> well, there's lots of reasons, but um, maybe the most relevant one today is that I study a gospel that's not even in the Bible. <laughs> Pretty damning, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll fit right in here. So, um, well, welcome, welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're here. I've had just the pleasure of knowing you for several years, and we, we run around together in, in scholarly circles. So we are definitely going to talk about the Gospel of Thomas later on, so everyone stick around. Uh, but first, we just want to get to know uh, Melissa a little bit and hear a little bit about your journey. So um, just maybe fill us in a little bit. How, how did you get, first of all, how did you get start getting, um, Matt, please edit this. How did you get started studying the Gospel of Thomas uh, to begin with? What led you into this heresy to in your life? Yeah, it was my very first year in college. I went to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and my professor was a guy named Lloyd Gaston, a New Testament scholar, and we had a special January term. And this was 1972, <laughs> just to uh, set it, uh, the scene. And he titled his course, Gnosticism and the Counterculture. Counterculture was a big thing at the time. Hippies and <laughs> anti-war and that kind of thing. And um, so I decided that sounds like a fun class to take. It was pass-fail. You just went three days a week for a month. And he had us read the Gospel of Thomas in a translation that had yet to be published. Um, it was a work that had been discovered 50, 45 years before, but had not ever been. Wait, my arithmetic's way off, Matt. Sorry. <laughs> 1972 had been discovered 35 years before. <laughs> but it was only emerging into the public eye at that time. And I just found it fascinating. So um, filed that away in my consciousness somewhere. And when I got to divinity school, one of my professors was studying the Gospel of Thomas and working on it. So I thought that sounds kind of cool. And I 
tried to learn and did learn the Coptic language, which is the language of Egypt in early Christian times, since the only full copy of the Gospel of Thomas that we still have was written in Coptic. I am super excited for the conversation about the Gospel of Thomas. I wonder if you would mind the way we often talk about uh, people's journey is, how did you get here from there? Um, so what was it that led you from whatever it was that shaped you in childhood or um, to ending up becoming a, a professor in biblical studies? Yeah, well, my parents were both professional church musicians. And um, I had one grandfather who was a lay preacher and another grandfather who was someone who carried a Bible around to try to save people for Jesus, if he ever could. So on both sides of my family, I had uh, that kind of person. And so I actually inherited both of those grandfathers' Bibles, <laughs> um, which I could find somewhere behind me if I needed to. Um, so I, I grew up in the church, in other words, and um, mostly in the Presbyterian Church, which is one of the Protestant denominations. But my parents over my childhood um, led choirs and played piano and organ at Lutheran churches, Episcopal churches, Methodist churches, and uh, also a Jewish synagogue, Reform synagogue. So I was exposed to different varieties of a certain type of Christianity. My mother's family was conservative Baptist from small town Illinois. And... Um, she was encouraged not to go to college. She did not follow her sister to Moody Bible Institute, which is um, a very strong Bible-believing, possibly now accredited college. I'm not sure it was back in um, 1940s and early 50s. Um, and her sister successfully attended Moody Bible by finding a young Baptist preacher to marry. <laughs> so she dropped off, after, dropped out after a year. And I grew up also knowing that part of my family fairly well. And they were very strong about how the Bible is the true word of God. And there's um, nothing there that um, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Um, I was sent to Baptist Bible summer camp several years in a row. <laughs> but it worked as a kind of inoculation because even as a young person, I was a questioner and a seeker, maybe a bit of a doubter. But one, one real gift from that side of the family, um, my mom's mom, a Baptist, gave me an illustrated child's Bible. And I read that book until it was in tatters. I just loved that book. And it gave me certain ideas about God and the world and how it worked. And the one that I remember most strongly from my childhood, um, there were many, many illustrations in this book, right? The Illustrated Children's Bible. And typically, if there was a particularly holy person, almost probably always male, maybe a prophet or Moses or someone like that, They'd be shown standing in a landscape, and there'd be clouds, and there'd be a beam of light shining down on them, almost like a spotlight, right, mm -hmm. to highlight them. And I remember as a child when the clouds would part around my neighborhood, and the sun would send its rays down like that. I thought, oh, there's someone really special over in that cornfield <laughs> or something. Um, it's an example of how impressionable we can be as children. Um, 
as I grew older, I became more and more skeptical, I guess you'd say, but I maintained a lot of interest in the Bible um, for whatever reason. I remember in high school, I started attending a Bible study group in a private home, mostly so I could ask questions. <laughs> I also liked the other girls there, to be honest. And um, so it was a fun group socially and also just in terms of exploring what the Bible might mean. Um, and this got known in my high school that I was part of that group. And I remember a friend of mine in math class turning around one day and saying, do you really believe that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt? Hmm. And I was flummoxed by the question because, no, I didn't <laughs> believe that, but I didn't see why it mattered. you know. And that just right. showed me the stakes that were at play in certain conventional Christian notions about scripture. It's all true in a particular way, or maybe none of it is true, that anxiety. Mm -hmm. and I found that anxiety very interesting. When I went to college, I had intended to be a professor of medieval history. And I got more and more interested in church history. I studied Greek and Latin on the side. I was also a classics major in addition to a history major. Latin because I had to keep it up if I was going to study the Middle Ages in Europe. And Greek because I thought, well, when else am I ever going to learn that language? It sounds like fun. Read Homer, read the New Testament in Greek. And um, it turned out that I loved the language, and it, it was really nice for me. So I went to divinity school to do a master's in religious studies, Harvard Divinity School, um, thinking I needed to know more about theology and religion if I was going to focus on church history in the Middle Ages. And I got moved earlier and earlier and earlier in church history, and I finally started getting interested in the second, third century, in part because there were all these controversies over which texts could be read and whether women should be allowed to be leaders in the church and many other issues. And I'm slow to, to realize things, I guess. A light bulb went off in my head and I realized, wait, if I stay a historian of the late Middle Ages, I'm going to have to use my Latin all the time. And I don't like Latin nearly as much as Greek, but if I study the early church, Greek is essential. <laughs> so actually, my study of early Christianity, including the Bible, is a direct result of the fact that I loved reading Greek in college, even though it wasn't New Testament Greek. So it's kind of a circuitous path. I love that. I love that. Um, in divinity school, I was doing a master of divinity, so I became a student minister part-time for two years. It was part of the requirements of the degree. Um, and I found that I wasn't suited for the pastoral ministry by doing that. Um, I had a hard time visiting the families of people who were ill and whose family members were on death's door and offering the kind of comfort they wanted, which was, oh, yes, you'll see Uncle, Uncle Bill in heaven real soon and i don't want i don't deny that possibility i just have a hard time being persuasive about it you know <laughs> um and i figure that a, a minister should try <laughs> at least to be comforting there um that's just one example um but i still i'm still very um interested in the mysteries of life hmm. 
and what might happen afterwards. It's just that I'm more of a questioner than someone who thinks she has the answers to so many of those questions. Um, so I actually left the church um, in the early 1980s. Um, I realized I wasn't much of a believer. I couldn't, with much integrity, pretend I was. Um, and for 30 years, I stayed away, except when taking my mother to church every so often. Mm. Um, and then starting about 10 years ago, it actually started sooner, but about 10 years ago, I began a process of coming out in public as a transgender woman. And that whole complicated journey, that turmoil, that questioning, that self-scrutiny, led me to have this very strange to me, but very strong yearning to find a congregation to join. <laughs> and it, it didn't really fit for me. It didn't fit the narrative that I knew in my culture. Sure. That transgender people aren't welcome in church necessarily, or that we are rebels against God's will for us or something like that. Mm -hmm. kind of things one might hear. But nonetheless, it was very strong. And I asked around a little bit with friends who did go to church, and I got a recommendation for a particular congregation in the United Church of Christ, which is a somewhat progressive, in our case, quite progressive uh, Protestant Christian group. And I walked in the door, and I've never walked in any other church door for purposes of worship. Um, I was just felt at home right away. Uh, there were no other trans people there. <laughs> But somebody stood up and said, hey, um, this Episcopal church in a nearby town is going to be doing a training in a couple months for how we should treat transgender people who come to church. Would anyone like to go with me? And I thought, what? You know? <laughs> and, and so on. And it was just, it was a very lovely experience. And I've been there now for eight years. I'm now moderator of the congregation. Bless um, you. Bless yeah. you. Yeah. And that <laughs> different in different uh, Christian organizations. So anyway, I'm now a professed Christian. I publicly um, pronounce that I'm a Christian and a heretic. Um, but <laughs> what I mean by that in part is to try to stand up for a style of Christianity that is welcoming, inclusive, attempts to be loving, and um, not a group of people that judges others even while it pretends it doesn't. And Christianity has taken on such an evil name in many of my circles. When I um, simultaneously came out as transgender to my profession, I'd been out to family and friends sooner, and also um, that also joined a church, I found it much easier to come out as a transgender person to my friends than that I was going to church. Yeah. <laughs> Going to church is much more shocking to me. <laughs> it made me cooler than I'd ever been before to some people. <laughs> going to church had the opposite effect, you know. So kind of a leveling experience. <laughs> and anyway, I, as a, one last thing here about this journey, um, I'd been working on the Gospel of Thomas off and on since my student days a little bit, but in print from the mid-1990s, published, I think, 12 or 13 articles so far on Thomas, um, might be writing a book on it, it's starting to sound like fun. Um, and 
the Gospel of Thomas has some very interesting things to say that relate to gender and the body. And I noticed those, of course. But as I grew into my true self as a woman of transgender experience, I read the text with different eyes and different sensibility. And so um, I have revisited the Gospel of Thomas a few times now um, in the last three or four years and have offered readings of the Gospel that are attentive to transgender eyes, ears, heart, experience. and that's been fun for me in part because it's attracted some attention. So it coincided in large part with the pandemic. <laughs> um, so I started speaking in classes on Zoom and things like that, much more than I'd ever been asked to before, because admittedly some of my other publications, although very important and central to the field, <laughs> are not that interesting to students in general. <laughs> Somehow, a couple of my articles on being a trans person reading the Gospel of Thomas and talking about my story quite openly in print, in open source articles that don't require any barrier other than having a computer um, or access somehow, um, that that sparked some interest. And um, so that, that's been a fun aspect of the whole thing. And being invited to this conversation is one of those joys for me. Thank you so much. Um, th- oh, thank you for sharing all of that, Melissa. And I'm I'm just reminded at how much mind, body, spirit all kind of come together, and just how lovely it is. I think for me to hear that that your your gender journey has coincided with a spiritual journey, <laughs> yeah. or that maybe it is a spiritual journey, or maybe our spiritual journeys are also gender journeys, or you know, however we divide those up. In my case, they would be part of the same thing, related. Yeah. 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 Which is why it's kind of perfect that you're a Thomas scholar, because he's uh, that particular gospel talks a lot about uh, integration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if uh, I I don't even know where to start. So we've been trying to read, or in Katie's case, reread certain texts uh, before we dive into these conversations, um, and there's so much to say about the Gospel of Thomas. I wonder if. Um, if you have thoughts on where we should jump in for anybody who's not familiar with it to, as a yeah. great starting place. Yeah. yeah. I think it might be helpful for me to just explain a little bit about the text. Thanks. Um, the little bit I've said before. So um, many of us are aware that the new Testament includes four books that call themselves gospels. Um, it turns out that in the early church, early Christian authors, theologians, historians, refer to many other Gospels, about 25 Gospels by name, including the four in the New Testament. (laughs) But they also mention the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas, uh, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of the Hebrews, Gospel of the Ebionites, um, and so on. And most of these were only known by titles because the authors from the early church whose writings were preserved for us tend to be those that spoke in ways that were useful to the power structure of the imperial Christian church as it developed over the centuries. And those that spoke against that kind of power or had a kind of theology that didn't fit the standard views as they developed out of the prototypes of different types of Christianity, one gets labeled eventually Orthodox or Catholic, Orthodox meaning the correct teaching or correct opinion and 
Catholic meaning universal. <laughs> so the Catholic Church, um, despite its other part, Roman Catholic Church, is claims and does have worldwide stretch. And um, the trouble with words like correct opinion or correct belief and universal are they are as much exclusionary as they claim to be inclusionary, <laughs> inclusive, inclusive, because um, it's kind of a totalitarian system, potentially. I'm not speaking against the contemporary Catholic Church, or, or certainly not the Coptic Orthodox Church. I have some dear friends there. But I'm talking about the tendency of a structure that wants to kind of impose a standard view. And one standard view, for example, is the identity of Christ, or what it means to be a human being and how one um, advances as a human being, perhaps from this earthly existence to some more spiritual existence. And those are all topics of all sorts of religions, not the Jesus part, maybe. Um, <laughs> but um, the question of what happens to us, where do we come from, why are we here, um, is something that takes different forms, even within Catholic and Orthodox Christianities, of course. Um, but in the early church, uh, this hadn't been settled. So the Gospel of Thomas is one of these voices that presents a different view, not only of Jesus, but of us as human beings than can be presumed or, or extracted from the New Testament Gospels or the author Paul the Apostle or the Book of Revelation or something like that. And it's an approach that had great appeal for some. Um, by the late third century, there are an early fourth century. There are four copies, separate copies of the Gospel of Thomas that still survive. Three fragmentary ones in the Greek language, which is the language in which it was written. It's true for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as well. And then one in this full Coptic translation that got buried in Egypt sometime in the fourth century, along with some other dubious works and um, so-called rather like the Gospel of Judas being buried um, elsewhere in Egypt around the same time. Um, and the Gospel of Thomas has more copies earlier than the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark's oldest copy is a composite book from around the middle of the third century, so 50 years after the earliest two or three copies of the Gospel of Thomas. And that says something. It may be that people were more interested in reading Thomas. It may be that because Mark is absorbed into Matthew, 90% of it reappears in the Gospel of Matthew and 60% of it in the Gospel of Luke, um, that in the, in the nature of the case in antiquity, you had to get a book by having someone handwrite it for you. And this is time-consuming, expensive, socially, economic issues involved and um, so it was easier maybe to just copy one gospel. Mm. And since Matthew repeats so much of Mark, um, why why do both? You know, that could be one reason. Whereas and let's Tom be honest, Mark yeah. ends on such a downer. If you're going to choose one of them to transcribe, that's they not all, the one. They ran away and said nothing. <laughs> they were so scared. Right? I, I choose Thomas because it's shorter. Like, less, <laughs> less hand cramping. Maybe that's why it circulated so yeah. much. 114 verses, so to speak. That would be a useful thing to say. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what is Thomas and why is it different from the others? Well, there's some major things other than the fact that it's not in the New Testament. For the One of the most basic, as soon as you start reading it, is that Thomas does not adopt 
the pseudo biographical nature or semi autobiographical biographical nature of the New Testament Gospels. So Mark is the least biographical, but Matthew and Luke famously offer stories of Jesus' conception and birth and a little bit about his childhood and tell a story of Jesus walking around on earth in Galilee, going in and out of towns, meeting people, expelling demons from people, calling disciples, you know, famous things, right? Um, going up on mountains and giving sermons or whatever, and then heading towards Jerusalem where he gets into trouble, deliberately apparently, gets arrested, put on trial, executed, buried, and reports of the risen Christ start to pop up here and there. Those are the Gospels of the New Testament, and they share all that, however different they might seem to some of us. And their similarities are much more striking when you look at the Gospel of Thomas, because it has none of that. We don't know where Jesus is in the story. He just starts talking. Mm -hmm. We don't even know who he's talking to for about a page, so to speak. Um, the, The sixth little paragraph has his disciples asking him a question. Who? <laughs> they just appear. You know, it's like it's like you're on stage and you have someone monologuing. Yeah. And then people wander on and or they raise questions. And like possibly a Socratic teacher, maybe not, Jesus kind of fends off the questions at times. Um, and you know, will answer it through ambiguous ambiguous statements or enigmas and Again, this is shared somewhat with the New Testament Gospels, where Jesus speaks mysteriously at times, and Gospel of John in particular. Mm-hmm. Jesus is tricky. He uses a lot of puns. Oh, you have to be born anothen to see the kingdom. Well, what does that mean? Well, in Greek, it can mean either from above, which is what Jesus means. You have to be born from heaven. You have to be born in a spiritual way. This is John chapter 3, in case you don't know. But Nicodemus, his conversation partner mistakes it in the way that our modern Baptist friends do as meaning being born all over again, because anothen could either mean from above or again, over again. And it kind of means both in John, to be fair. But Nicodemus thinks it means a physical birth. What? I'm supposed to crawl up inside my mother's womb and get born again? And Jesus says, oh, no. (laughs) You have to be born in spirit and truth. Um, So there's part of that in, in any of the Gospels. But Thomas, without having any narrative structure that's, that's easy to discern, begins with a very striking claim. It says, these are the mysterious or secret statements of the living Jesus, the Jesus who lives, that Jesus spoke in which Didymus, Judas, Thomas wrote down. And he said, who said? <laughs> Doesn't say Thomas, Jesus. Whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. Now, that's a good blurb to have on the back of your book. (laughs) You're there at the airport. You're looking for something to read on that long flight. And if you read this one and figure out what this guy's trying to say, (laughs) you're not going to die. I mean, in some sense, at least. And um, I think it's a great opening. You know, it's a lot better than Matthew saying, this is the book of the genealogy. (laughs) Yeah, right. Messiah, Abraham did beget so and so and so and so. 
Yeah, it is a much better opener. You're totally right. Really good. I mean, uh-huh. you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In fact, the word was God. You know, that's kind of cool too. But anyway, the stakes are set right away with this gospel that Jesus is going to speak in ways that are mysterious. And if you care to go on a little journey here, a journey of discovery, I call it a self-scrutiny in part. The theologians call this hermeneutical, meaning of a style of interpretation, then you're going to, in effect, be saved, right? That's what it means not to experience death. In the Gospel of Thomas, salvation means escaping the limits, pains, struggles, terrors of our physical existence on the earth to a spiritual home of light and truth with God, right? So it's a version of leaving our physical existence for heaven. But the mechanism is quite different from what you read in the, in the scriptures of the New Testament. So just to review, <laughs> Paul and the Gospels claim that the way to break through um, one, the limitations of physical existence and be raised up to the kingdom of heaven or enter the kingdom or go to heaven or go to God's presence in the sky, whatever it is, is due to the sacrificial death of Jesus. That um, his death on the cross is somehow an atonement for something. <laughs> um, it takes centuries for Christian theology to figure that out, exactly what that means. Um, well, what did we do wrong, you know? Um, but anyway, that the the death of, of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are fundamental to human salvation. Secondly, reenactment of, of his life and death, especially the circumstances of the death, is crucial to be saved. So we have the Eucharist or Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of the final meal that Jesus has with the disciples, and the reenactment that in baptism, just in case you know, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, which is interpreted by Paul as a dying with Christ when you were immersed, and a rising back up to life with Christ when you come out of the baptismal pool. So that is a fundamental Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Christian view, right? That salvation comes through Jesus because of the death of Jesus that God offers to save us from ourselves or something, from our sinful nature. Thomas doesn't mention baptism. Thomas doesn't refer to the crucifixion of Jesus. Thomas probably knows that Jesus was executed, has no interest in that story um, for whatever reason. Possibly it's because we know that you already heard that story elsewhere and that's not what we're doing, but possibly, but, and <laughs> Thomas has a different model for how to escape this world. And that's the word I'm using because unlike more mainstream scriptural notions of creation, Thomas shares a more nuanced view of the created world, even a negative view. Thomas is someone who looks out on the world and sees injustice and suffering and pain and limitations and doesn't embrace them as what we deserve as humans whose ancestor ate the apple or whatever. 
instead says, wait, this is not our real home. We are trapped here. And this is where the word Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, sometimes connects with Thomas, although it's it's a, not a very complete connection because Thomas doesn't have all the Gnostic panoply of mythology and so on that other Gospels might. But Thomas says the way out is to recognize the divine element within us and look at that and learn from that and scrutinize yourself and recognize that you are part of the divine being. And the way to get back is to shed this earthly prison we have called the body, the physical body. So the very first statement of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas beyond the, hey, figure out what this means, you'll never die. (laughs) Jesus said, let the one who seeks Continue seeking until they find. When they find, they will become troubled. When they become troubled, they will be astonished. And in the Greek, they will attain rest. This is a script for my journey as a transgender Christian. I mean, I have goosebumps right now. It's been a while. They still come to me as I read this. Let the person who is seeking right? (laughs) Who's trying to figure stuff out, continue until they find. And when they find, it's going to be a problem. (laughs) You're going to be troubled because very few gay, non-binary, transgender, other identities that are not socially acceptable in in conventional circles, when they discover things about themselves, they'd rather they hadn't, right? I want to be normal. Mm -hmm. I want to fit in, especially when you're, let's say, uh, middle school age or something like that, which is, I had a very live gender conversation with myself starting in elementary school. I tried to hide for many years. I successfully hid for many years in the camouflage of a male body, a male persona, a male name, a male voice, as many of you may be hearing. Um, But Jesus said, Keep looking, you'll get troubled, but when you get troubled, you'll you'll have wonder. You'll rest and you'll have figured it out using the language. You will rule over all of it. <laughs> you'll be in charge. This is how I'm reading this personally. Now, yeah. I'm reading this as a transgender Christian person. I'm not saying that anyone else, including other transgender Christian people, would have the same experience. It's fundamental, I think, that although as a scholar, there are certain claims I will make about Thomas, which I've already been making, but what it all means to me as an individual is something I can argue strenuously, but I can't tell you, any any of us, what it means to you. Well, and the nice thing a... about and the thing about Thomas that's nice is it is open for individual interpretation. Go ahead, Katie. I'm sorry. Well, oh, no, no, no. I know. I really appreciate that. And it, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like right off the bat, right? Like Loki on two. And I was just thinking with the people I work with, because I, I work with people who are exploring like energy and things that are outside of their church box for the first time. And that's the exact path, right? They're seeking, they're disturbed because things aren't matching up the way that they were taught that it was, but then that, that kind of wonder and that marvel, you know, it's all part of that spiritual journey. If we can live with the being disturbed. Mm. Yeah. That's... Long enough, but we have to sit with it, which yeah. is uncomfortable. Yeah. 
so I really love that we're talking about this because um, my struggle, my struggle with Gnosticism and a lot of the people in my world were like, oh, the church has been hiding all of this stuff from us because it is the truth. It is the liberal, you know, radical perspective. And when I started digging into Gnosticism, I'm like, they want us to hate our bodies. That's just like the evangelicals. I don't get why this is supposed to be the big deal. And and Thomas does that. And this is the tension I'm feeling is, I am so grateful you said what you said, because I... I I hadn't thought about it that way. I had mostly been thinking about it from like, I've been on a journey to not hate my body. Um, And this is coming at it from a different place. I wonder, and like you said, Thomas may, may not be um, uh, Gnostic and we don't necessarily have to unpack that, but. um, But it does share that aspect. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for your bringing this up because um, yes, um, in the first article I wrote, from a, on Thomas from a transgender experience, I, I press the point that isn't it great that our bodies don't have to define us. Right. Um, and yet I also acknowledged that, you know, I was, I was raised by second wave feminist writers that I would read on the sly in high school and stuff. And um, our bodies ourselves was a primary text yeah. of my, my young womanhood disguised as a man. Um, and so the notion of seeming to denigrate the body and, and so on seems to really fly in the face of the whole movement of body acceptance and body love and, and that kind of thing. Our bodies ourselves in that sense. Um, and if that works for you, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> um, and I struggle with that as a trans person because my body told my parents when I was born a lie about me. Yeah. Um, my body has told lies about me my whole it's still telling lies about me. Yeah. Um, despite certain medical interventions and so on. Um, and so again, as a transgender reader, I I pick up on that in a, at a different kind of energy level, maybe than someone else might, you know. Yeah. Um but there's 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 talk of transformation. May I just look at one statement from Thomas on this? It's Please, Thomas. yeah, yeah. Let's read them. And those for those who have never read Thomas, um, we'll make we'll provide a link. But I know when I was rereading it today, it's like you're reading a whacked out version of the New Testament. If the New Testament is what you're familiar with, it's like kind of familiar, but mm-hmm. then different. And so um, everyone's gonna y'all are gonna have fun with that if you've never read it. If you've never read it, it'll take you 15 minutes. Go read it. And it's also kind of got Proverbs vibes and that it's just a bunch of sayings strung together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys are doing such a better job of describing the text. <laughs> That's not true at all. No, it's, no, it's like, true. Thank you so much. So um, Thomas 21 had had a thing where um, Mary, unstated which Mary, there are two mm-hmm. or three in the, in the New Testament. What are your disciples like? To whom are they like? To what are they like? Now, this could imply that she's not one of his disciples. So maybe this isn't Mary of Magdala. Maybe this is his mom, although that's dubious because he speaks poorly of the woman who gave him birth later. Like someone shouts out from the crowd as she does in Luke, blessed are the, is the womb that bore you in the breast that gave you suck. And he said, huh. <laughs> um, instead, he says, think about something else. But he's not really being a mom basher. He's saying it wasn't 
our emergence into the world in this form that really counted. It's our divine reality that counts, whoever we are as bodies. But anyway, he, Jesus in 21 compares his disciples to children settled in a field that they don't own. Now, that's kind of interesting, and we could spend the rest of our time on that one. I'm just going to pick up on this children part, because there's a famous scene in Mark 10 in Parallels where um, the disciples try to shoo some little children away from Jesus. Parents are bringing, or people are bringing little kids to Jesus for him to bless them or something. And the disciples are like his roadies saying, no, 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 stay away. You don't have a VIP pass to see the master, you know, or whatever. And he stops them famously and says, let the little children come to me for such are the kingdom of heaven. And so it's in that kind of context, sort of, this image of entering the kingdom as a child or how children are prototypical of a disciple. That was 21. Very next statement, Thomas 22. Jesus, one of the rare ones that starts with a little anecdote, very short, because in, in the New Testament Gospels, you've got a whole scene. You know, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He calls some fishermen, and he says something to them. Jesus saw some infants at the breast, infants being suckled. And he said to his disciples, these infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. And they said to him, and you can hear kind of some derision or sarcasm, I think, in their question. And this is one thing that I'm a little unusual in Thomas scholarship. I see the author or the narrator or whoever is capable of using irony and sarcasm. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people who are not literalists in the New Testament, but they can't read past the, the surface of Gospel of Thomas. And that's one of my struggles is to get people to not take it as literally as you want to. Anyway, shall we have to enter the kingdom like little kids? And he says, if and when you make the two one, when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and the female one and the same, so that the male not be male, nor the female female, and you fashion eyes in place of an eye, and a hand in place of a hand, and a foot in place of a foot, and a likeness, meaning I think a facial image, in face place of a likeness, that's when you'll enter the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a really interesting statement, and it's fundamental to a lot of um, transgender Christians who aren't Thomas scholars necessarily, but they've heard of this one and they like it because it talks about a bodily transformation, right? You redo your eyes and your hands and <laughs> your face and maybe other parts of the body that Jesus was too coy to mention, you know, genitals or something. Um, of course, when you make male and the female one and the same. Mm -hmm. um, this this one statement brings to life so many features in Thomas. First of all, it's a little puzzling. Like, w when does that happen? When you do this? But okay, but how? <laughs> you know, like, hello? Um, secondly, um, the very first part, when you make the two one, and this mm -hmm. has come up already in our conversation, the Jesus of Thomas is all about unity mm -hmm. and singleness, not division including of ourselves. 
So he doesn't like the idea. He, I don't know the gender of the author, but I suspect the gender is male because the book ends on a very androcentric. Yeah, we got to talk about that in a, <laughs> in a minute. I would call it punchline, like you yeah. get punched in the face with it if you want to be gender right. variant. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so, and I don't know how much time we have left, but this making the two one is really important because it means somehow surpassing the duality of human existence that Thomas sees. And there, Thomas is sharing perspectives with the Gospel of John and with Plato and other thinkers of the day that our our soul or our spirit or our mind is where we really exist. And this is not that unlike many modern people. Like, where where am I? Mm-hmm. You know, am I a soul? Am I a brain? You know, what am I? You know, where's the me in me? Yeah. So I I definitely think we should get to the end because that is a really important thing to talk about. Let me ask really quickly. um, So this is really beautiful. And I love that you're like, let Jesus have a little snark. Like, (laughs) I think Jesus has a great sense of humor and we keep missing it. Um, So I I love that. And can I give one example? Oh, yeah, please. So um, it's it's pretty famous. And this has been read as straight history by the bulk of New Testament and Thomas scholars. The disciples said to Jesus, T- Thomas 12. Oh, good. That was on my highlighted questions. We know that you're going to leave us. Who is going to be our leader? And Jesus seems to give a straightforward answer. Wherever you are, you are to go to my little bro, Jimmy, uh, known in the text as James the Righteous. For whose sake heaven and earth came into being. Now, this apparent praise of half brother, real brother, stepbrother, James, Jacob, is read historically by many, many New Testament and Thomas scholars. Um, some of them are paying attention to an article I published a few years ago saying, bullshit. First of all, who is to be our leader, asked the disciples. Already twice in this gospel, starting in Thomas 3, Jesus has poo-pooed leaders. Don't follow leaders. They don't know what, they don't know anything. <laughs> Look for yourself. So when the disciples say, oh, Jesus, we know you're leaving. Who's going to be in charge? And he says, well, if that's who you are, you know, if you need a lot of help, if you need some instruction, Jimmy's got a whole school running down there in Jerusalem. Go down to him. He'll get. He'll tell you what to do. <laughs> so that's one way of reading it. Another way to read it, though, is this last statement, which reeks of sibling sarcasm to me. Or if you don't want to historicize it and think about a real Jesus and a real James, you could just talk about how different groups would diss each other, right? Throw some shade on them, you know? You know why heaven and earth exist at all, he says? It's because of James. <laughs> if it weren't for James, none of us would be here. I wouldn't be here. It's the for sake of James that heaven and earth came into being. He was always dad's favorite. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm now substituting mine and my sister's names yes. in this and just like kind of imagining it. And just for listeners, um, they're who 
maybe maybe kind of aware of like the conflicts in the in the first generation of the early church but it seems like christians were split between those who were following james those who were following peter those who were following paul and i think probably this whole other all of these other groups who weren't following any of those who were you know thomasites or you know whatever were yeah people who were writing and reading things like this so um that would be an example of of the kind word to be irony Nonetheless, there's a very famous Gospel of Thomas scholar who's built her career largely on building up a historical sequence of how the Gospel of Thomas was collected and put together, using this as a signpost that the community started very early in Jerusalem under the authority of James, because here Jesus says, that's where you go. I, I would name her if you want me to, but um, since I said so, some things that are discouraging. Maybe I, I don't need to. But well, we were about the, that may, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, this this is helpful because when I was rereading it, I just didn't remember this verse. I was like, "What the hell? What the hell is James yeah. doing in here?" Because like yeah. the tone of gospel seems very antithetical to anything that James was doing, right? So we'll, we'll read commentaries on the Epistle of James in the New Testament. There's two biographies of James out there still in print. All of these books, the ones that are not written by Thomas people especially, quote Thomas 12. They don't care about Thomas generally, but they say, see, James is a really important guy because even the heretic, heretical gospel Thomas acknowledges his importance, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, I, wanted to get, I wanted to get to the end of the text. Is that okay? Yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. The one quick thing yeah. I want to ask is, before we get there, is do you think – so if if we have snarky Jesus and Thomas, when the disciples are like, those girls can't be disciples, they're girls. And Jesus is like, don't worry, they'll be dudes eventually because they are disciples. Is he being snarky there or does it fit into the... In part, I think in part. So, um, yeah, so as, as I mentioned before, G, uh, the teaching of Jesus as presented by Thomas... Mm -hmm is that we need to seek unity and right. singleness. And Thomas is one of the readers of the creation stories of the book of Genesis. And I don't have time to repeat all that, but in the second and third chapters, there's these, in, early, in the fourth chapter, there's Adam and Eve character. And we've read in the first chapter of Genesis that God created human being according to God's own image and God's own likeness. Male and female, God created them. And that's typically read and is quoted at school board meetings today and in politics. Male and female. I read it as male and female. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in other words, humanity involved both of those things in its origin, our origin. And then in chapter two, we read about uh, earthly Adam. That first Adam is somehow spiritual, like God somehow, you know. We hear about. God now named Yahweh forming a little human being out of the clay and mud and having to mm -hmm. puff it up a little bit. And this Adam, Adam, means human being in Hebrew, right? To me, this Adam, one thing I realize as a transgender reading, has no gender mm -hmm. specifically. Um, there's a grammatical gender necessary in, in much language. You know, you have to refer to it somehow. I call it an it until God notices how lonely Adam is mm -hmm. and how restless and says, okay, the animals don't seem to be keeping him good, it enough company. 
I'll pull out a rib or something and pull out the female aspect of this person and make a man and a woman, and then we have Adam and Eve. Anyway, Thomas, along with many other like-minded readers like Philo of Alexandria and possibly the Gospel of John, read this as a fall. The entrance into materiality is the fall. Death and sex and all that stuff is a byproduct of entering into materiality and thus mortality. Okay, so Thomas is trying to get us back to that pre, before humanity was divided by gender. And that's what makes the two one. And Jesus, in my view, in Thomas, has achieved that or is that all along. Jesus is an emissary of the God of light from heaven. Jesus has no gender in Thomas, in my view. Although the the text has to use a pronoun. Mm-hmm. It actually uses the he pronoun. You know, um, But it's clear to me in several ways that the gender of Jesus is different. And one clarity is this statement you refer to here at the end of the gospel, um, where Simon Peter, a key figure around Jesus, plays this typical role that you might see if you read the Gospel of Mary and Pistis Sophia and some other texts. Make Mary leave us. And he justifies his misogyny by women aren't worthy of life. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a shocking statement, except you might be aware that Peter has a lot of jealousy of Mary Magdalene's closeness to Jesus. And in the Gospel of Mary, he says, are you telling us that the, that Jesus loved you more than us and he told you stuff that he never told us? Are you, are you, you are a woman, you know, he says. <laughs> um, I don't want to rescue the text from this androcentric view, but I do want to point out that it's a statement of the stance of, of the that was taken by men, male philosophers at least at the time, that women represent materiality, earthiness, you know, motherhood, the whole the whole thing. Um, and men are more spiritual or intellectual or something like that. So that's what Peter means by saying women don't just aren't worthy of life. I don't think Peter means we should kill off the women. I think what he means is life, the real life that we're all headed to, we hope, with God. How do you do that as a woman? Because woman isn't spirit. Woman is flesh. That spirit-flesh divide that Paul is so on to all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jesus says, well, I myself will take her and make her male, so she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself or is made, could be male, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, again, I don't want to protect the text from its androcentrism. Still, it's stating that none of us in our current bodily form can enter heaven. We have to enter heaven as a living spirit, and that term has come up repeatedly. Jesus is alive, right? That's what it says in the very opening sentence. These are mysterious words that Jesus, the one who is alive, spoke. And that alive word doesn't mean the guy walking around Galilee in his sandals. It means the divine Jesus or divine emissary, at least. 
So I, I'm going to, uh, don't worry about Mary. Don't worry that she's a woman and can't go to heaven or whatever. I'll make her into a man. And then she'll be kind of like you guys, you. And I find that you very interesting. We trans people are very into pronouns. Have you noticed that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't say, my name's Melissa. I use she and her pronouns. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, as he might have thought to be, you know, I'll make her just like us guys. She'll be like us, us men. He doesn't even say he'll be. She'll be like a man. She'll be a man. She says, "Well, I'll make her into living spirit, like you, men." That's exactly what it says. Like resembling you, males, mm -hmm. because you have to. In their theory of the hierarchy of being, you only can exist in heaven, let alone get to heaven as a spirit, as a light-filled spirit or spirit-filled light, whatever you want. I think that's really an interesting idea. And you have to leave the body behind. And in their deeply androcentric perspective, men are closer to that than women. But women can get there through a harder process. It's always have to work a little harder, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. But anyway, I found this to be true in my feminine pr persona. Um, so anyway, the, the, the text is anti-flesh, anti-material. I don't deny it. But I, I like to think of it in the positive way, <laughs> that it's, yeah. it's affirming of our inner spiritual truths. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where we need to concentrate, according to this text. Thanks for listening. Thank you. No, that, that was super helpful. And um, one one question about that final um, saying, um, my my little English translation online note um, says that this one may be added at a later date. Hmm. Is that uh, true, or is that is that in the Coptic? And it could be added later. The only full copy we have is this Coptic translation. It yes, it's not is exactly. very it's like a proverb book of Proverbs as as was pointed out, in the sense that you can easily add and take things out. Right. So on, it's not impossible. But I see that as a way of trying to rescue rescue it. Okay. You know, we want to think of Thomas and Thomas 21, let us think that, you know, that it's kind of a, hey, we don't have to be men or women. We can kind of be both or neither or whatever. And yet here Jesus says, well, actually, women have to kind of take on them. But if you take those as not literal terms, but symbolic terms, those who are stuck in the flesh, <laughs> right, who are mired in their fleshly material existence, will need to go through an intellectual spiritual process to to get lighter, <laughs> become part of a person of light and and rise to heaven and and live eternally with God in the in divine realm. And any of us can be stuck in our material world, right? Uh, we call them women because we're men and and we like to prefer superior. I'm talking about the authors of these kinds of things. Um, but to me we should read past the, the surface level there. Well, thank you. I feel, um, I feel very complete mm -hmm. and integrated and inner and outer here. 
after this discussion. Katie's now a Gnostic. Good job. Yes. No, I, I can't. I don't think I would ever would be. Show me your new hands and your new I mean, eyes. Yes, right. I want to, I want to know how to replace my icon with an icon of my face, but <laughs> maybe more makeup, more and better makeup could do that. Um, um, the carnival, you wear a mask. Yes. Exactly. My Louisiana nature shall come out. Um, Shonda, any final questions? No, this was perfect. Thank you so much, Melissa. Oh, thank you, Shonda. I really loved your observations. Um, Melissa, where can people find you if they they want to know more about your work? Well, um, I don't know how many people have access to scholarly publications. I don't write for the general public, sadly, or or probably just as well. Um, But Katie... You're aware that academia.edu yeah. is a and I don't know how open that is. Is that yeah, an open? We can post that. It's yeah. like people could join it for free. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you look up Melissa Harl Sellu at academia.edu, all these articles I've mentioned are posted there and you can download them or read them, I think. You may have to join to be able to print them or something, but um, you can at least see the reference to them and um as as some of us know, there's an, a book collection that we hope will be published in the not-too-distant future called Transbiblical. Yay! And, um, there are two of us on this call who are on the editorial team. We're and blessedly, blessedly pleased this will be coming out, yes. Yes, and um, it includes an article by me called Considering the Body with the Gospel of Thomas, and it might have been more honestly titled Reconsidering the Body, because mm. I, I try to rethink and not be as body negative as I came across in that earlier article. Um, <laughs> so that'll be out there and more that'll be more available to people. And um, I'm I'm feeling a tug in my heart or someplace to write a book on the Gospel of Thomas. Because I have a lot to say, and a lot of what I have to say isn't like what other people have to say. And that's a harder bar to, to, to cross if you're writing about the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew or the Epistle to the Galatians, because so many people have said so many things. So um, maybe someday <laughs> there'll be a book on Thomas for me. Awesome. Yeah, we'll post the academia.edu um, account information. And yes, when Transbiblical comes out, all listeners, you will see the skywriting. and (laughs) many announcements shall be made so awesome well thanks so much for being here thank you i'm very grateful for your time letting me um, delve into this this mysterious book (laughs) isn't melissa just amazing um i love working with her on transbiblical and just all she's been it evolved in the gospel of thomas for like almost 30 years just amazing I was super inspired, super uh, excited. I want to be friends with her. I want to sit and learn from her. I want to take classes. Um, yeah, I got tons out of that. What do you think about it, Keith? Yeah, I can't. You know, honestly, I can't. I'm speechless. I mean, you could tell during that whole conversation. I was just in awe. I mean, I, I, I didn't. I didn't. I was just sitting there, like, man, this is so incredible. Um, Couldn't and I find the really, words. Yeah, I couldn't find the words. Yeah. I, Keith, I've never known you to be like completely speechless in the entire episode. I just took a vow of silence right right at the beginning. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I wasn't I wasn't a part of that conversation, uh, sadly. But but I love Thomas, so I can't wait to hear what she said. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I hope we I hope we agreed at least on some things. Uh, I don't think we talked about this with Melissa, so I'm just kind of curious. Um, do you all it, is the Gospel of Thomas kind of inspired from that one famous interaction in the Gospel of John mm. about Thomas asking Jesus about you know I won't believe it unless I feel mm-hmm. the yeah yeah yeah. Let's see. Like, is that kind of part of the inspiration of why this is like Thomas gets to be the kind of spokesperson here? Well, um, I am of the I am of the opinion that um, those comments in in the Gospel of John that kind of single Thomas out, for example, as the only one of the disciples who wasn't in the room when uh, Jesus appeared and breathed the Holy Spirit on them and anointed them. Thomas is the one left out. And Thomas is also the one who says, I won't believe until I touch the physical body of Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. I think, and there are other scholars who agree with me, I think that that's put in by the author of the Gospel of John because he had read the Gospel of Thomas. He knew that what, what Thomas already said, and he was oh. wanting to sort of throw some shade on Thomas so that his readers wouldn't take Thomas seriously. Look, don't listen to Thomas. He wasn't even in the room when Jesus anointed all the other disciples. And, you know, look, here's G- here's Thomas, see? He doesn't know the truth. He doesn't know the light. He doesn't even believe, really. And so I, I, I take that. I take those little jabs in the Gospel of John as uh, at least possible evidence that the uh, the author of John was wanting to distance himself from uh, those that read and believed the teachings in Thomas. Interesting. So yeah, that'd be a super early date. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I do. Yeah, I do take that too. Like I think that. Um, I think there's reasons to believe I have, I have a completely different perspective on this. Uh, I think there's reasons to believe that Thomas, that we can date Thomas somewhere between Mark and John. That's one of the reasons why, but there's other reasons why um, I think that that's likely, but um, I mean, yeah, uh, without getting too deep into it. Yeah. I, I, I do take the, that view that I do think it's a collection of sayings of Jesus that was, that was put together sometime around in that between period between Mark and John. It's interesting because um, in recent years, I guess I've take, I've come to interpret that passage in John, not necessarily a shade, although I think it could be, um, but as Jesus is like, Oh, this is what you need. I'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I like that. Here you go. <laughs> like, some people need that. No problem. No problem. Yeah. Here yeah. Exactly. Go. Exactly. Jesus doesn't condemn right. him for that. Yeah. He's not yeah. berated for that. Yeah. That's good. I, 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 you mean that you mean the, you know, you got to touch the hand and everything. Mm-hmm. See, I, I see that as almost like, yo, don't, don't believe things that you hear just right. Cause you got, I mean, like, it's okay to be skeptical and have doubt until you actually like, don't just believe all the rumors and the gossip and whatever stories you hear. Like, I, I don't see any, I used to think, oh, doubting Thomas throw shade his mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And it's like, hold on. I actually think that's, that's a good thing. We should, I mean, look at how applicable it is today. You hear some on the internet, you hear some on the news. No, I got to touch this shit before I believe it because that's there's right. a lot of stuff out there that, that that's a disinformation and all that. Yes. Yeah, Fake out, news. Yeah. Seek out truth for yourself. Right. Don't just believe even, even the yeah. other disciples, like, like the, these other 10 guys are telling you that they saw Jesus and Thomas is like, oh, um, I don't know. When I see it myself, I'll believe it. And yeah, you're right. I think that's a good thing. It's a little lesson sure. to say it's okay to seek out truth for yourself, um, to determine for yourself if that's true. So yeah. And he doesn't get condemned for it, right? No, no. He doesn't get right. rated. It's just, Jesus just right. makes a little comment about how blessed are those who believe um, and have not seen, yeah. right? Because he knows yeah. that down the road, people yeah. are not going to be able to touch him. And right. Yeah. 
And and that's certainly important for John to emphasize. It's interesting because Thomas is really important in the church in India um, because, you know, we've got that, uh, we've got that narrative about Thomas uh, possibly being uh, kidnapped, enslaved, sent to India, working um, there, introducing Jesus to um, uh, a queen and her husband, the king, killing Thomas. Uh, martyring Thomas uh, for that, but it's the beginning of the spread of Christianity in India, uh, which we're really, uh, the people, particularly the people in the Martoma church in South India are really proud of having a pre-colonial Christianity. Now, most of the Christianity that's practiced in India was absolutely shaped by colonization, but Uh there is kind of this real pride uh, in yeah, we got Jesus before the white people did, actually. Um, <laughs> yes. That I think is kind of is kind of cool. So he's really important uh, in uh, in the Indian Church for that reason. And so I really loved this episode because one of my frustrations with Christianity, uh, Western versions, but also um, you know globally, is that disconnection of body from spirit. And um, I think a lot of body shaming. I think a lot of um, anti-sex stuff comes from um, that division of body and spirit. And it was really great to hear Melissa's reflections on actually, here's how that message can also be liberating. Yeah. Um, and and I thought I thought it was really powerful to hear a framing of actually the division of spirit and body can offer hope, uh, can offer comfort, can offer encouragement. Um, and that, w- I mean, there were a lot of things I learned from, uh, from our time with Melissa, but that's one that's going to stick with me for a long time. I really appreciated that insight. Yeah. Well, you know, where we hear about that story of Thomas going to India, yet another censor text from the Acts of Thomas. That's right. The Acts of Thomas. Yeah. yeah. Nice, fun, fun third century text. I don't know if that was actually censored because no one was trying to get all these other acts. <laughs> No, no. Right. But for the purposes of our show, I'm going to be sensational. But censored. There you go. <laughs> well, if I can if I can give a little plug too, like I have a I have a little online course on the Gospel of Thomas that I, that I have available. So people can check that out. Where can people want. find that, Keith? Um, great question. I think it's actually at, if you can go to choiracademy.com and you will find great. it listed there along with many other courses. Awesome. Q-U-O-I-R academy.com. That's a... Um, Sean, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a good reminder that like if we're cis, if we're straight, if we're male, if we're whatever, like we're never going to see the things that people not like us are going to see. Yeah. And then she brought some things that I was like, oh, I would have never thought about that. Right. And then so hence the reason we do this stuff in community, right? Mm -hmm. With people who are not, who are not like us. Yep. Um, so that's always a good reminder. Katie, you were the first, so I'll give you a shout out too. And I don't know how long ago it was to really emphasize, like, even when you're talking about the resurrection and the bodily resurrection, like there's a lot of body negativity around a non-bodily resurrection. So to, to emphasize the body in that, it's like, oh, I w- yeah, that I would have probably not approached it like that. So I'm mm. a reminder that yeah. not everyone's like me, right? So yeah. you're going to have great insights from people not yeah. like you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And in, in my research, like in my research on enslavement, and this is a little far afield, but I promise I'll circle it back around. In my research on enslavement, part of the ancient rhetoric around enslavement was, oh, you're only enslaved in your mind. What happens to your body doesn't matter. That's a shitty thing to say if you're getting the hell beat out of you. 
by right. Well, my body right, hurts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like and that absolutely, and we know now with our brains that absolutely informs the way that we experience, you know, everything mm-hmm. too. Um, and it's, you know, same especially for female bodies that get scrutinized. Um, so saying like the body just doesn't matter. Yeah. When we're talking about the resurrection or Thomas or anyone is short. It's short sighted it might be too strong of a word, but it's uh, not seeing the full picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those yeah. for whom embodiment is um, an everyday struggle. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Thomas and Melissa mm-hmm. for yeah. highlighting yeah. the benefits and the curses. And Melissa. Yeah. 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 Yes. And, and thank you to all you wonderful listeners who head on over to our antiquated and outdated website, heretichappyhour.com. It's almost as I old as like, the Gospel of Thomas, yeah. And this joke's almost going to be as old as the Heretic Happy Hour hotline that we have. That, yeah. <laughs> for, the for the long-time listeners. Is the hotline number still on the website? What's that? Is the hotline number still on the website? Probably. I believe so. I, I think so. we should just take the website and just make it. We should just have hereticapera.com. You go there and it's just a hotline number. That's that would be the ultimate <laughs> joke. Is it, oh, is it but, turned on? Isn't it? Isn't the hotline still working? Yeah, I left Ralph. Um, uh, longtime listeners, you know that Ralph was our first producer. I left him a message. He doesn't check it, I'm sure. There's got to be a way to access the voicemail, which may be full. Maybe our pal pal came back and left a bunch oh, of voicemails. God. We don't know. But sometime in the future, I'm going to say it on the air now that maybe we should have a, a we should go see if there's any voicemails. And if there are, maybe we should do an episode on the voicemails. We should respond be to great. questions from 2020, I guess. Um, but yeah, head on over to heretichappyhour.com if you want some swag. Head on over to all your favorite listening platforms if you want actual updated episodes. Yeah. So everyone, if you go onto Heresy After Hours, which is a free Facebook group, you're going to see stuff like this. And I just posted this, and it's a picture of someone who looks like the Jesus that we kind of imagine. And it says, I don't always drink wine, but when I do, I prefer to make my own. (laughs) (laughs) So if you'd like to see other funny memes and irreverent jokes like that as part of your deconstruction journey, come to Heresy After Hours, join us, and join in the conversation with thousands of others of heretics like you. Absolutely. And um, please also take some time to support our podcast. Go to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. Choose your tier level of indulgence and um, we'll absolve you of your sins and you will unlock so many amazing, cool bonus, uh, you know, interviews, conversations, content, uh, great stuff. Go over there and check it out. And we do appreciate all of you who already support us on Patreon and um, you guys are awesome. So thank you so much. I'm going to make a special plea this episode. I would encourage you to go to um, the Heretic Happy Hour uh, site, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts, to rate and review us. If you would be willing, put in a note about how great you think December is. She's still on sabbatical. We miss her. We love her. And it would be really cool to give her a couple of shout outs in the reviews on Apple, Spotify, wherever you happen to listen to the show. Yeah, yeah. Give us like a one star and say I'm not. I'm not changing this until December comes back. <laughs> no, don't, don't do that. that. Don't, don't do that. Not a, not even as a joke. That one you can star. say it's a conditional five star rating, though. There you mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. That's better. Don't listen to me, folks. I just talk my shit. Don't listen to me. <sighs> oh yeah. I think we got enough one star ratings up there anyway. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wondering like. December would have said about you know these episodes. Yeah.
Davis, and we'll come back soon.